From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about ballot initiatives, and our guests are Joshua Dick and Ted Lasher, the authors of a book called Initiatives Without Engagement, a Realistic Appraisal of Direct Democracy's Secondary Effects. And I think in some ways, this conversation will provide an interesting contrast to the one that we had recently with David Daly. And if I think back to our discussion last year with Lee Hanna and Dan Mallinson about marijuana and our episode with Hedrick Smith going even further back than that. And I see a lot to say that initiatives, as we've talked about them, have been framed as inherently a good thing for democracy. But I think that Josh and Ted provide a bit of a different take maybe on how sometimes good intentions can go bad. So one of the things I think that is important that Josh and Ted bring up is the foundations of the ballot initiative and where it comes from. And it comes out of the progressive era. And Michael knows a lot more about the progressive era than I do. But the things that I know about it are that they sought after several democratic reforms. They wanted to shift the public's attention away from machine politics and toward rational, deliberative democracy. Now, the thing is, is that not all change is good change or change can be complicated. It can have really good outcomes. And then, as you mentioned, Jenna, there can be some unintended negative consequences. And we saw that out of the progressive era, too. Yeah, Candace, you you flatter my knowledge of the progressive era. But uh, what has always struck me about that time is that there are definitely some contradictions inherent in what they did. Mm -hmm. But they make sense when you think about who they are and what it is that they were after. So they definitely were very uncomfortable with machine politics. They were uncomfortable with all forms of what they saw as corruption. We could go into some of what they did, but you really have to see it from both directions. They were doing a lot that I think we look at as good and important. And they also undercut a lot of existing democratic processes that were important. I had the privilege of talking with a former colleague and current friend of mine, Nicole Mello at Williams College, and she does work on eugenics. And so, so one way that she described the progressive era is the revolt of the wasp. And she mentioned just what you're saying, and just to elaborate a little bit, that some of the things that they tried to do to clean up politics, they had a particular way of thinking about who should be involved. So again, there's some good things, some bad things, and some of the things that we still live with. Josh and Ted focus on the initiative. And of course, there's the possibility for voters to just go around legislators. You're not doing what we want. You're not paying attention to the things that we want you to pay attention to. And so we'll just put it on the ballot ourselves. And from most perspective, that's a really good thing, especially in an era when we have such high polarization and elites, political leaders and policymakers aren't doing their job. But there's some cruel ironies there, too, about who leads ballot initiatives today. How much does it cost? Who uses this tool and for what purpose? And is this another way they highlight some of the problems that are perhaps unintended consequences from the ballot initiative. 
Yeah, there's this idea of giving people the power. I mean, you, you only can vote on what you have a choice to vote on. Mm-hmm. And so, sure, referendum initiatives, which probably say do give people the opportunity to be able to vote directly by policy. But it's not like anybody can just get something up there on the ballot. So there's still quite a bit of gatekeeping that goes on in the sense that it's expensive. It requires a large number of signatures. It requires a large number of labor. And so maybe the political parties are giving the choice through legislatures, or maybe those who can manage initiative drives are the ones that are giving you the choice through the initiative. So it can be a little misleading that the public is really that involved on an initiative compared to other. This is one of those things where context matters so much. And what could folks in the late 19th century, early 20th century, imagine that we would be in a place where there are 350 million Americans. And I was looking up the cost or the amount that people are spending on ballot initiatives. And in 2020, the most expensive one was the Proposition 22 in California about at-base drivers as contractors. And between the support on the pro side and the con side, they put in $222 million dollars for this initiative. And so I can't imagine that at that time, the people who thought that let's use the ballot, the referendum, the initiative, excuse me, the the initiative, the ballot, wait, the initiative, the referendum and the recall would have imagined this amount of money and the amount of manpower, people hours, signatures that you'd have to put in to participate. Yes. At Uber, uh, that was something else, wasn't it? Because it might have cost them $220 million, but they're going to get more than their money's worth on that. And, and it, it, it brings up this other thing, right? Is that like, I can't imagine that the progressives would have thought that, I mean, part of what they were doing was to try to diminish the power of large corporations. And here yeah. we essentially have these corporations using the ballot initiative to wield more power to and to reduce benefits to their workers. So again, yet another irony. And I imagine that people would have not predicted how this kind of effort to produce more democratic outcomes would serve to produce the opposite of what they intended in the first place. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, their focus in this book, which I think is really quite interesting, is on the second order effects on individuals. Do individual people gain knowledge? Are they more involved? Do they participate more from the process of the initiative and the referendum, as opposed to more of a sort of systemic influence that the initiative offers another way of making public policy? Republican government requires or allows for both direct and indirect democracy to operate. And this is how we see a lot of direct democracy. Yeah, and that's a great way to set things up. Thank you for pointing that out, Michael. I think we'll hear Josh and Ted talk more about the kind of distinction between the organizers and the individuals and some of these different levels at which ballot initiatives occur. So let's go now to the interview with Josh and Ted. Ted and Josh, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. 
We have talked about ballot initiatives on this show several times in the past, but never kind of a, a dedicated conversation. It's always been in the context of something else like marijuana legalization or broader discussions about grassroots politics. So I think a good place to start might be looking at some of the history of ballot initiatives and, and how we think about them in the broader context of the progressive era and and those types of things. I think the two of you make the argument in the book that there might be a bit of a, I don't know if it's a, a misinterpretation or some gaps in the thinking there. So Ted, if you don't mind starting us off, what maybe are some of those misconceptions or ways that we think about ballot initiatives that might not be exactly right? Well, first, it's worth saying, Jenna, that there wasn't a really coherent philosophy necessarily underlying the people who advocated for initiatives in the progressive era. And that sometimes we've tried to maybe manufacture that more than was apparent. But one thing that was evident from the start was that there were a lot of people who were claiming that ballot initiatives would have this educative effect with citizens, that it would make them feel more engaged, that it would be more supportive of democracy, and things like that. And these claims have been repeated over the years by political scientists and commentators and others. And we, for a host of reasons, think that those views are misleading. And when you get to Josh, he can probably best articulate what we have a sort of alternative theory about what's going on with sort of the big picture, how ballot initiatives really involve citizens. Yeah, I know. And I definitely do want to talk through some of those specific elements like political polarization and some of the other factors you outlined. But before we get to, to some of those specifics, I know you, you also talk about this concept of engagement world, which is, I think, where some of what you were getting at, Ted, about some of the ways that these of theories have been invented along the way. Josh, can you tell us a little bit more about what engagement world is and how it fits into this conversation about ballot initiatives? Sure. So I think that this concept of engagement world is this idea that political participation fits within a story of political engagement, right, or civic engagement. So that an individual to become involved in politics in the ways that we might recognize, like the end might be that we want someone to participate in elections or know who contact their elected officials. And that connects to a series of other engagement activities that come before participation. So those engagement activities might include being politically interested or being politically knowledgeable or feeling politically efficacious. And so in the story that we're told about how political engagement works is you store up this democratic capital. And then once you're sort of like meter bar of democratic capital, like a video game above your head gets high enough, you become a more likely participant in politics. And so this is kind of the way that political scientists and a lot of commentators have talked about and thought about the ballot initiative process and about sort of engagement in politics more generally, is that if you challenge people with more meaningful 
versions of political participation, then they're going to become more efficacious, more knowledgeable, etc. And then when they get all of those stores of democratic capital in themselves, they're going to become more engaged citizens. So even though it's harder to be a good democratic citizen when you have to vote on 20 ballot initiatives, right? It takes more time, it takes more energy, there's more to learn. You're also challenging people to become more engaged and that challenge to greater engagement will actually make them more engaged and result in higher rates of participation and higher rates of civic engagement. And so that's kind of the story of democracy that we're challenging in this book. And there's also, I think, as part of this kind of grassroots effort to get these things passed, you need bipartisan support. So there's stories about how people from across the aisle come together or maybe groups that wouldn't have reason to work together otherwise. Like I know some of the medical marijuana initiatives have had veterans and criminal justice reform advocates. And there's sort of a strange bedfellows kind of thing that happens. But I think the two of you argue that, again, thinking about it from a voter perspective, these initiatives are are actually likely to increase political polarization. Is that right? So these issues get put on the ballot. Many of them are the issues that parties are tabling and not making it through the legislative process. So Colorado has been through several iterations of trying to define life at conception through some form of of an abortion initiative that's meant to create a national challenge case for Roe v. Wade. And that's a hot button issue. That's an issue that's meant to critically divide the population and that you're going to get a very partisan and ideological response from the electorate on. The same thing that we argue when we talk about the effects of things like Prop 187 in California. And so what happens through those processes is, is there are these very strong dividing lines that happen within the public that you end up with these strong partisan stands and that creates a stronger structure for polarization, particularly partisan sorting within the electorate where the parties sort of send cues about how to vote on issues which maybe aren't in the state political domain at the time. And that that then strengthens polarization within the electorate in the states that are using the ballot initiative. And so I think what's happening in the information environment is, is that you have an unrestricted spending environment that basically lays the groundwork for people to kind of understand. And so this is the most educative effect that we really find, right? And we, we kind of talk about this is like the closest we can come to a political knowledge effect is not a general political knowledge effect, but it's people learning through the process because you have these very expensive campaigns. And through those campaigns, you get a lot of endorsements, you get a lot of cue behavior, you get a lot of name calling that kind of calls something conservative or something liberal or attaches known political figures to things. And that process sorts the information in a way that expands that scope of conflict in a way that is clarifying for voters. But the end result is greater partisan polarization. Like Once you're done with it, what you're left with is polarization. And so you might say, oh, well, that's not a bad thing because that's the accumulation of knowledge. 
But part of what we're doing is pointing out the irony of it, which is that this was designed to dampen the power of parties or to give people the ability to express nuance, maybe to go across the aisle back and forth. And that's not really how the ballot initiative process is working. It's largely being used to expand and deepen partisan warfare, because if you are a wealthy zealot, you can put an initiative on the ballot that would never be considered by the legislature. And then suddenly there is a hundred million dollar campaign about that issue that is waged with advertisements. And no matter if that changes policy or not, that's going to have an effect on the public. Right. And that ties to something else that you talk about as well, which is that the initiatives are often used to restrict minority rights, which, again, isn't something that is often talked about or isn't, I think, part of the popular conception of how we think about these measures. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, this is something that we've found and that others have found as well. And what we looked specifically at initiatives in the post-World War II era in California and looked at all the initiatives that had been on the ballot from that time. And we found lots of examples of initiatives to restrict minority rights, to prohibit services to undocumented citizens, to restrict measures to integrate schools, to overturn a fair housing law, to ban gay marriage etc. And literally, we found exactly one example of a measure to expand the rights or opportunities of minority groups. And that was a measure in the 1950s and was soundly defeated. And going back to what Josh is saying about the divisiveness of the initiative process, we think what often happens here is that these anti-minority initiatives are ways to bring sort of very marginal voters in the majority group to the polls, people who are infrequent voters, et cetera. And so these very controversial wedge issues bring them to the polls, and that may increase turnout, but it doesn't make them more generally engaged or knowledgeable. And it does have this very perverse effect of often harming the interests of people in minority groups. Ted and I have written a little bit about this since we published the book, but we think that in a lot of ways, for the minimum wage in particular, but I I would lump marijuana in with this, are very much special case issues where you said, is this always a bad thing? No, I, I don't think it's always a bad thing. I think that in certain instances, you find these kind of areas where you are able to find the public is finding a way to kind of push an issue which legislators maybe are not acting on as quickly. But by and large, what we find is is that when people try to follow their policy agendas through the initiative process, they often get hit upside the head by this reality, which is that we have found that electorates through the ballot initiative process have been extremely resistant to uh, civil rights. That continues to be true. That was certainly true with a series of things that happened in the last two election cycles with ballot initiatives. We have a couple of things we can point to where you have very favorable election outcomes for Democrats with some like head-scratching ballot initiative outcomes that Mm -hmm. happened at the same time. Think about the labor law outcome impact of what happened with Uber in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, you think about some other things. So in California, we estimated that on average, 
to get an initiative measure on the ballot cost about $6 per signature. And this was just a few years ago. Then you multiply that by the number of signatures you need. And that, that means you need millions of dollars in a state like California and a lot in other states too that even aren't as big just to get it on the ballot. And then you think about how long it takes to get the initiative through, et cetera. The fact is if there's strong consensus in the public for doing something, it's very often cheaper, easier, and easier to go the legislative route. And the good example that we saw a few years ago, there was a big hue and cry in California after there was a big measles outbreak in Disneyland. And so the legislature put a measure on the ballot to tighten vaccination restrictions. And that was passed by the legislature in six months. Now, granted, this is an unusual situation where there was a very strong view, but it would have taken millions of dollars and a couple of years to do that by an initiative process. Yeah, I mean, so what about for the democracy reformers out there, whether it's gerrymandering or ranked choice voting or other types of reforms that people might be trying to push for, whether it's the case that the public maybe is uninformed or ill-informed about what the issue is or how they should feel about it. But there's also a disincentive among the legislature to take it up because it runs counter to their own interests. What is the kind of best path forward there, do you think? I do think it's the case that the initiative process is, say, makes it easier to do things like reapportionment reform. Because you're right, that does attack sort of legislature's interests as legislators. But then you also need to realize that you also can get the bad with the good. So there's reapportionment reform, but initiatives also brought in a wave of term limit measures. And at least in California, there's precious little evidence that those have had the positive impact that people originally claimed they would have. I'll just add real quickly that if you want to pass some form of democratic reform, yes, you're much better off and you're much better suited to being able to do that if you're in a direct democracy state, in a ballot initiative state. I mean, most of the states that did pass term limits were 17 of 18 states that passed term limits were ballot initiative states. As Ted said, that was a be careful what you wish for kind of situation. But on the ranked choice voting end, we just learned, I think, a pretty hard lesson in Massachusetts, which that was an extraordinarily well-organized, well-funded campaign and well-run. And they could not get that past the voters. And I think one of the things that they learned was that Part of the secret sauce which got that passed in Maine was the political circumstance that people were angry about LePage's election, which came under unusual circumstances that would have not happened had ranked choice voting been in place. And then what an absolute disaster he was after that. And so that actually, there was a political circumstance that led to that reform. The reason that we get reforms a lot of the time have more to do with political circumstances than they do with some like general belief by the public in the sort of purity and goodness of the reform. And I think that the failure of ranked choice voting in Massachusetts by initiative kind of highlights that better than anything else. 
So as we head into the start of a new election cycle here, what are the two of you watching as far as where initiatives might go, how they may or may not be used moving forward? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that given that we're headed into an era where the Democrats appear to have control of the national government now, where there's more or less split control of many of the states, I do think that we're going to see what we saw in the last few years was sort of a resurgent of what I would call progressive issues pushing at the state level. So in the absence of the federal government's desire to address, say, the national minimum wage policy, I think the states filled a lot of that void. And so I think that we're likely to probably see a lot more of the core conservative issues that happened in a lot of the 70s and 90s tax cutting initiatives, things like that. I think we're going to see some retrenchment of conservative ideas in the states. And I also think that we're going to see a lot of action around abortion issues, particularly with the current Supreme Court, as there's an attempt to create a a challenge to Roe. We could see that through a legislature in, in a state, but we could also see that through a series of initiatives. Like we note in the book, they've been trying to do that for a number of years. We've also seen sort of a downward trend in initiatives over the last couple of cycles, fewer initiatives just generally, and that may have something to do with the overall nationalization of American politics as sort of state politics becomes less autonomous from the national political arena. We may see fewer issues come up through sort of the state process as sort of polarization plays out at the national level. Interesting. Yeah, I think Josh has provided a very good summary. I guess one area I'm particularly curious about is the criminal justice area. As Josh suggested, there was a, a long period where you only saw very restrictive criminal justice measures like three strikes laws. And then as public opinion in general has change. We've seen a few more of these initiatives to get people out of prisons in recent years, but interestingly, with pretty mixed success, even in liberal states like California. So I'll be interested to see how that happens and whether there's going to be any renewed attempts to get rid of the death penalty in some states. So as we bring this in for a close here, we've talked about some arguments that, as we said at the beginning, might run counter to a lot of how our listeners have thought about initiatives and kind of the way they're presented. Any final thoughts to kind of wrap this all up about how, what should people take from these arguments as they consider whether they're involved in grassroots organizing or just trying to really be informed voters when they go into the voting booth or, you know, complete their mail-in ballot next time around? How should people take the arguments that the two of you have presented with this story that's out there about the ballot initiative process? So I think that what I want people to know about sort of the way that democracy works in the United States is that these forms of direct democracy that we've developed aren't necessarily I think that in their ideal form, they are a form of pure democracy, right? 
the way that this works is that this is direct democracy. In fact, that's what most people call these sets of reforms, like the ballot initiative, referendum, recall. This is direct democracy in America. And I don't really think that that's the way that this process works. When we understand how voters behave, when we understand how initiative entrepreneurs behave, and when we understand how money works in politics, this is not really a direct democracy. There's no deliberation that happens over these policies once they're put forward. They're put forward in a yes or no manner. There is tons of money spent on these things. And then when we examine the behavior of voting on these measures after the fact, we find that they're hugely constrained by people's partisanship and their ideology and their level of trust in government. And so when we vote on issues like this, they have other implications for democratic society. And what our sort of contribution is, is, is that the level of conflict and rancor that we're engaged in in society is really not great right now. And the ballot initiative has actually become a battlefield for how we expand that conflict and rancor and make ourselves dislike each other more. And we're actually kind of concerned about that. We don't think that that's especially good for democracy or democratic society and its long-term survival. We still have a democracy. We have a representative democracy. And there might be ways to think about sort of lowering the temperature on some of these ballot initiative elections. But the way that it currently works is actually creating more conflict and given the level of polarization that currently exists in society, I actually have some pretty big concerns about an institution which we say is supporting democracy that's also supporting the current level of polarization. And the main thing I would add is I would hope voters would go to the ballot box with some skepticism about, not about the legislature, but the reverse, that people should go to the ballot box skeptical about the claims that direct democracy advocates often make about the failure of the legislature and the failures of representative government, because I think they are often misleading and partisan and extreme. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Ted and Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great interview, Jenna. And one of the things that stood out to me in response to what you were saying earlier, Michael, is about the levels of analysis. And one of the things that they bring up, which I think is important, is they're really concerned about the role that initiatives can play on polarization. I mean, we live in an incredibly polarized political environment. And Ted and Josh are kind of like, yeah, well, what happens when people use the ballot initiative to put extreme measures on the ballot? What does that do to the public? And I, I think they take issue with this idea that these extreme measures can be really divisive and they can, you're touching on hot button issues. But for me, I'm not sure. I think that's 
terrible completely. And again, this goes back to the kind of good and the bad of any particular issue. So for example, in the case of Proposition 187, which is probably not a measure that I would have voted for if I had the opportunity at that time. So Prop 87 was a policy, a ballot initiative in California that sought to strip access of undocumented immigrants to non-emergency medical care, to K through 12 schools, into public universities, higher education. And if I'm not mistaken, almost 60% of Californians actually voted for that. So on the one hand, it's a bad policy from my perspective, but it wasn't divisive. I mean, not divisive in so much that 60% of the population voted for it. But the other thing I think that's important to know is that the public then got a better education about where the Democratic and the Republican Party sat on these issues. They got a clear signal from leaders that the Republicans preferred policies that reduce the access and rights of undocumented immigrants, and Democrats wanted something different. And that hurt the Republican Party in California for decades. I don't think the Republican Party in California has ever really quite recovered from that. I was also thinking with this polarization about what happened down in Florida, because here you have a case. Now we're in a much more polarized time. Mm-hmm. And so they have this initiative that was clearly intended to be bipartisan and received bipartisan voting support. So bipartisan support among the public to allow former felons the right to vote. But then it gets into the legislature, which is highly polarized. Mm -hmm. And when it gets into the hands of the elites within the legislature, it basically got torn apart. I don't want to say it got completely torn apart, but they were able to impose all kinds of restrictions on it that really took some of the bite out of it and some of the potential impact of it. So you can avoid the polarization through this system, but eventually it's going to get wiped up. It's going to get sort of wrapped up in it anyway. One of the things that stands out to me is it's a kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't situation, because we know that policymakers try to avoid issues that will make them look bad, that will force them to have to take a stance on something that they don't want to or that is a wedge issue for the parties. And the ballot initiative provides an opportunity for people to put those things front and center. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. But again, we're back up at this level of analysis. We have a hard time, (laughs) I think, sticking (laughs) to the level analysis they're operating at, which in part, I think is what makes their study really kind of interesting and innovative in that they're focusing on these second order effects. So what does it mean for an individual to participate in this process or not? And it would be more compelling to me, I think, if I were to see that side by side with studies that said, what does it mean for somebody to vote in an election in general? And I think people do get something out of voting as opposed to not voting that is important for their own sense of efficacy, for example, and need to go out and get knowledge. I guess a question then that I have, Michael, is this really direct democracy? Well, my sense on direct democracy is the larger you get, the less effective it is. And the more it's likely to get wrapped up into these where big money and big organizations become effective. 
So, you know, when you're at the school district level, when you're at the town hall level, Mm -hmm. then sure. I mean, it's direct democracy and it's deliberative. It can be because you can stand up and talk. Right. But these seem like a mix. It's got a lot of the characteristics of a regular election with lots of money and difficult issues to understand. But of course, it's not mediated by the parties. So, I mean, technically it is direct democracy, but direct democracy, too, comes in many forms. Well, it's good that we have people like Ted and Josh who are thinking about these really hard issues and also just thinking about potential reforms. And so Mm -hmm. maybe the reforms for the ballot initiative this time around won't produce and maybe probably will produce unintended outcomes just as we see them historically. That's a good note to end on. I want to thank Ted Lasher and Josh Dick for joining us at Democracy Works and Jenna for the great interview. I learned a lot and just kind of thinking a different way about the outcomes of the ballot initiatives. We've had really great guests on the show to highlight the good parts of it. And of course, we always need to be brought back to reality on these really hard issues of democracy. For Democracy Works, I'm Candace Watt-Smith. And I'm Michael Berkman. Thank you for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant's Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.